Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is John McHugo, and I'm a trustee of the Balfour Project, um, and I'm chairing this session on international law. Um, I've noticed that speakers have already mentioned international law, although only in passing. Um, His Royal Highness Prince Hassan mentioned it, and so did Avi Schleim. And I think the, there are two things to be said about international law. The first is that it is quite appropriate for it to follow on from the session on history, because, of course, um, what the rights are in international law flows directly from um, his, what happened in history, because it is to history in a way that we look for our rights, even when those rights have been traduced, denied, uh, been incapable of being fulfilled or enforced. Uh, nevertheless, the roots for all of that are in history and we need to understand it. The other thing I hope, and it'll be interesting to see if our discussion uh, confirms this or not, but uh, I would hope that international law can give some clarity, um, but we will see. Um, our keynote speaker today is uh, Baroness Helena Kennedy, She's having some difficulty joining us at the moment, so we may instead uh, begin, if this is all right, uh, with our two other speakers, uh, Professor Ian Scobby and Dan Danny Seidemann from Jerusalem. So Ian, I'll go to you first, if I may. And um, Ian is the Professor of Public International Law at Manchester University and the co-director the Man Manchester International Law Centre. He had previously been the Sir Joseph Houghton Research Professor in Law, Human Rights and Peacebuilding in the Middle East. And I've known Ian for many, many years, and I know that he has a very detailed knowledge of the international law issues concerning Israel and Palestine. He studied law at Edinburgh, and also the Australian National University, but it was at Cambridge where he did his doctorate and he uh, did that on legal reasoning and the judicial function in the international court. And the person he studied under, those of you familiar with international law will know the name very well, is the late and great Sir Elihu Lauterpacht. Ian, over to you. Great, thanks. Um, <clears throat> I hope that by not being Helena Kennedy, that I'm not disappointing you too much. What I want to talk about are really the claims that are made regarding sovereignty over or the status of Jerusalem. You know, as we all know, Palestine envisages that East Jerusalem should be its capital, while Israel claims that Jerusalem as a whole or as, as, as we've seen earlier, an increased Jerusalem falls within its territory. I think it might be an odd place to start, but I think if we go back to, the, to 1993, when Israel and the PLO entered into you know, the Declaration on, on Principles on Interim Self-Governing -govern Arrangements, you know, these were meant to lead to the negotiations, which would lead to permanent settlement but one which implements Security Council Resolution 242 of uh, 1967. This resolution was adopted in the aftermath of the Six Day War and called for Israel to withdraw from territories it had occupied during the Six Day War. In other words, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the West Bank. Excuse me. In an exchange of letters which were associated with um, the Declaration of Principles, the, the PLO expressly accepted Resolution 242. Now, this legally could be interpreted as an indication that, in principle, Palestine accepts that West Jerusalem legitimately falls within Israeli territory, um, subject to any modifications that could be made in the final status talks, but we all know that they have been stalled for some time. Now, this idea that Israel has jurisdiction over West Jerusalem um, has also arisen from some interpretations 
of the Wall Advisory Opinion, which was delivered in 2004. Uh, this opinion was delivered by the International Court of Justice, which is the principal, uh, principal judicial organ of the United Nations. Um, the case was about the course of the wall that Israel is building, and in particular, its encroachment into the West Bank and territory which goes beyond the Green Line. So, you know, we've got to bear that in mind, I think. And I'll be getting back to the wall advisory opinion slightly later. The other thing that we've got to raise is that in, I think it was 6 December 2017, President Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. As Mick Dumber, Mick Dumper pointed out, there is really a lack of clarity about what this means. Um, there were conflicting statements made, not simply by Trump, but by some members of his, his administration. So it's really not clear what this declaration of recognition entails. Um, President Trump always talks about fake news. This might be an instance of fake diplomacy. Anyway, Trump's statement was taken at face value and was generally repudiated by other members of the international community. For instance, there was a Security Council meeting in December 2007, where every member, apart from the United States, rejected the US action and criticized it heavily, declaring it was contrary to international law. And they unanimously voted in favor of a draft resolution, which affirmed the previous uh, resolutions made by the Security Council regarding the international status of Jerusalem. And this continued uh, stressing that Jerusalem is a final status issue to be resolved through negotiations in line with relevant United Nations resolution, affirms that any decisions and actions which purport to have altered the character, status, or demographic composition of the Holy City of Jerusalem have no legal effect are null and void and must be rescinded in compliance with relevant resolutions of the Security Council. And in this regard, calls upon all states uh, to refrain from the establishment of diplomatic missions in the Holy City. This resolution was not surprisingly vetoed by the United States. But a few days later, uh, the UN General Assembly overwhelmingly adopted a draft resolution that was cast in similar terms. During these Security Council debates on the Trump recognition of Jerusalem, some, mem some members made reference to Security Council Resolution 181. Now, this has already been mentioned in the history section. This was really adopted in anticipation of the United Kingdom's imminent withdrawal from Mandate Palestine, and it envisaged the division of the territory into an Arab and a Palestinian state, I'm oh, sorry, an Arab and a Jewish state. On the other hand, as has already been said, Jerusalem was not to be incorporated into either state, but it was to be internationalized under the auspices of the United Nations. You know, the, the, the part of the resolution read, the city of Jerusalem shall be established as a corpus separatum under a special international regime and shall be administered by the United Nations. Now, I think that at least in part, this was a case of international politicians looking to the past and to some of the experience during the interwar period. Uh, the most obvious one would be uh, the internationalized status of Danzig, which was not terribly successful. It wasn't a good example, but I reckon this is where this idea of internationalization came from. There were a few other um, proposals at the end of World War II for one or two other internationalized cities, which really didn't come to much. Now, Resolution 181, for various reasons, was never formally implemented but it still retains an importance. For instance, in the Israeli Declaration of Independence, it relies strongly on Resolution 181 
to base its claim to legitimacy. Similarly, the Palestinian National Council Declaration of Independence, which was done in Algiers on 15th November 1988, affirmed that Resolution 181 still provides a legal basis for the right of the Palestinian Arab people to national sovereignty and independence. 181 envisaged Jerusalem as this internationalized corpus separatum that has not come about. You know, as a consequence of the Six Day War, Israel occupied West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Shortly after the end of hostilities on 27th June 1967, the Knesset promulgated what's known as the Law and Administration Ordinance Amendment Number 11 law, which provided that the law, jurisdiction and administration of the state shall extend to any area of Eretz Israel designated by government by order. And this is really the basis for the Israeli annexation of, of, of East Jerusalem. Because the next day, the Israeli government proclaimed new boundaries for the city of Jerusalem, which were extended. And Mick Dumper showed you the maps of how, 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 how the, um, the lines were essentially redrawn. And these new city boundaries incorporated those parts of East Jerusalem, which had previously been under Jordanian administration. In 1980, in July 1980, the Knesset then adopted the basic law, Jerusalem capital of Israel, which states that Jerusalem complete and united is the capital of Israel. Now, although in 1967, Israel claimed that it had not annexed East Jerusalem, this really has to be doubted. Um, for instance, Israeli Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that East Jerusalem has been annexed and made part of Israeli territory. The 1980 basic law was amended in 2000 to provide that no area of Jerusalem within this extended municipal boundary could be transferred either permanently or for an allotted period of time to a foreign body whether political, governmental, or to any other similar type of foreign body. Legislative pro, uh, proposals have been put before the Knesset in the past few years, which aimed at enlarging the municipality to include adjacent settlement blocks and thus affect their annexation and tighten Israeli control over the area. This um, idea of further annexation is also envisaged by the Trump plan. When um, the International Court of Justice in 2004 delivered its advisory opinion, it reviewed the re reactions of the Security Council to Israel's attempts to change the status of Jerusalem, um, noting that it had repeatedly recalled the principle that acquisition of territory by military conquest is inadmissible and stated that, all, again, all legislative and administrative actions taken by Israel to change the status of the city of Jerusalem um, aimed at the incorporation of the occupied section are totally invalid and cannot change the status. I mean, this has been the standard and consistent view of essentially various different organs of the UN. Ian, I'm terribly sorry, yeah. but we're running out of time. I, I have to I ask you to wind I'm up. There. I'm nearly there. The other thing that I wanted to pick up on is in the Wall Advisory Opinion, um, the court stressed that all the territories between the boundary drawn on the armistice line between Israel and Jordan and the eastern boundary of Mandate Palestine, which is essentially the River Jordan, and which were occupied by Israel as the result of the Six Day War, which is, you know, West Bank and East Jerusalem, are territories where Israel is the status of occupying power, but over which it is not sovereign. This was a, a unanimous ruling of the ICJ. They are very rare. So it's clear that under international law, Israel is pro prohibited from making claims to sovereignty over territory, which it invaded in 1967. Um, as a belligerent occupant, it's only got a temporary power of administration and it cannot annex them. And as it doesn't possess sovereignties over these areas, 
they cannot form part of its capital. So Israeli domestic legislation on the extent of Jerusalem, its complete and united capital violates international law and has no validity or legal effect. And that's me. Ian, thank you very much. And thank you for getting so much into such a very short time. Um, I will now go to um, Baroness Hedona Kennedy, if I may. Um, uh, Baroness Kennedy is probably one of the best known people um, speaking at this conference today. She is a barrister, broadcaster, and member of the House of Lords. And she has many achievements, which I can't list all of them now, but she was the driving force behind setting up the Bonavero Institute for Human Rights at Oxford University. And she has been chair of justice, the British arm of the International Commission of Jurists. She has also um, an interest in the preservation of our democracy. And she was involved in Charter 88. And more recently, she chaired the Power Inquiry, which reported on the state of British democracy in 2006. Another of her interests is how the justice system fails women very often. And she has written several books on this topic. But I'll shut up there and hand over to Helena Kennedy. Thank you so much for joining us today. John, thank you very much for introducing me. And can I first of all apologize because there's work going on in the street outside of my house. And while I have a certain level of power, I do not have power to stop it. And I don't know if it's interfering with uh, our connection, but I had difficulty also in getting in. But anyway, I'm very happy to be here now. And, uh, and I wanted to start by saying that, you know, if you're going to talk ever about law, I always say when I'm, uh, I'm giving lectures to students or I'm, I'm dealing with the young in my own chambers or in the uh, uh, worlds in which I move, I always say context, context, context. You know, look at the context. Uh, in which law was being made, look at the context in which uh, uh, law is uh, failing and, uh, and, and see what the drivers are in both directions. And so um, this is a, a, a conference um, which has been built around um, uh, the Balfour project. And I spoke um, when uh, it was the anniversary of the Balfour um, uh, 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 um, uh, initiative. And, uh, I wanted um, at that time to, to really speak about um, the rule of law and all of this. But if we're going to talk about law at the moment, we also have to talk about the context now. So let's talk about the context then. It was, um, you've got to remember, it was, it was just as the First World War was ending. Um, it was when uh, Britain had its, uh, its boots um, all over the, 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 this part of the world and indeed elsewhere. It was the Ottoman Empire was brought, being brought to an end. And, uh, and of course, um, there, were, there were questions also. I mean, we were colonialists. We were used to thinking of people as being lesser. Indigenous peoples in many of the places that we occupied as, as the British Empire, were, we, we de were, they were being deemed as being lesser. Um, and, uh, and so um, um, I have no doubt that, that those views were held about the, the Arab peoples living in this region too. Um, and, you know, it's shocking for us when we, and particularly for our young, looking back to imagine such a, such a, a situation. But that was certainly true. And uh, uh, when um, the Balfour uh, 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 Declaration was made, um, there's, a, there's an argument about whether it really has treaty status. Um, but but there, were, there was, of course, great dialogue going on with um, very uh, um, uh, distinguished and powerful people in Britain who had settled in Britain, uh, like the Rothschilds and so on, who were advocating for um, the Jewish people who were being persecuted across Europe. We were also seeing, of course, um, revolution taking place um, uh, um, around this time and, uh, and, uh, and people rising up in different parts of Europe. So the, 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 there, was, there was undoubtedly um, a, a great deal of uh, discussion about what are we going to do and what is, you know, and of course, um, there was a movement to try to create a homeland for Jewish people to flee to. And, uh, and, and we all know the history of that, um, of, of uh, the Balfour Declaration. This a tiny thing, when I went back and had a look at it, um, when it was the um, anniversary, um, I, um, 
it came as a shock to me that we, it was basically 67 words. And this um, short document, of course, um, did lay the ground for much that has happened since, because it was referring to the creation of a Jewish home rather than a state. And so, um, uh, which was an unprecedented notion in international law. And it was leaving the meaning open for interpretation. Um, and, uh, and in fact, earlier drafts of it had, dis had described the reconstitution of Palestine as a, Jew uh, as a Jewish state. This region was being referred to as Palestine. Um, however, that uh, wording uh, would have been in clear violation of international law. So that was why it was changed to, to discussions about a homeland. Um, and uh, the, great, the project of finding somewhere of safety, a place of safety, is a discussion we have now over the whole business of refugees and people who are persecuted. Um, but of course, it was also about protecting British interests in the region. And they were particularly interested in protecting the Suez Canal and so on. So we mustn't think it was always um, simply about the protection of peoples. Um, and so um, there was no doubt that uh, there were mixed um, uh, intentions in this. Um, and that idea um, of there being a, a, a home for the Jewish people who were being persecuted across Europe in the pogroms that were taking place, the words included, nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. But as a, a lawyer, I would, point out to you and a lawyer who's interested in democracy and so on that the the word political rights those words are missing and uh and it matters um because um it, the political rights of, of of the palestinian people were not being protected and um the legal status as i said of the balfour declaration has remained sort of debatable. It wasn't a binding treaty between states. Uh, and so there, was no, there were no obligations uh, created on both sides. It was really a proclamation in a letter. Um, and uh, uh, its significance uh, as binding law um, came later um, when Palestine became a British mandate. Um, and so um, I just wanted to rush us through a, a little bit of that context, because, of course, what you all know is that um, between 1925 and 1948, um, the British um, uh, facilitated Jewish immigration to Palestine from places where across Europe where people were being persecuted, um, automatically granting um, each newly uh, arrived immigrant with a Palestinian passport. And uh, that was all done under the Article 7 of the Palestinian Citizenship Order, created in 1925. So right up until 1948, that was happening. And then, of course, we have the, what uh, the, the Palestinian people call the Nakba, but it was, uh, um, it was the, 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 the horror of, of uh, what took place in 1948, um, where the, the, after the Second World War, there was a, the mandate was there where the British presence occupied and controlled the region. And uh, there was a great deal of resistance from um, uh, uh, Jewish um, uh, um, resistance movements, um, the Ergun and so on. They would be called terrorists today, um, but they weren't very different from the IRA and so on, but basically wanting to create um, a proper Israeli state. And um, as you all know, um, in 1947, the UK turned the Palestine problem over to the United Nations with no recommendations. And the United Nations General Assembly in, on the 15th of May, 1947, created a special committee on Palestine. Um, and that was uh, in response to the United Kingdom's request that they did something, the General Assembly did something um, and made rec to make recommendations as to what should happen in this region. And it was concerning a future government of Palestine. Um, and then the final report of that year, 1947, there was a plan and the plan proposed an independent Arab state, an independent Jewish state and an independent city of Jerusalem. Um, anyway, um, well, the, the Palestinian Arabs and members of the Arab League rejected any partition of Palestine. And, uh, and so, of course, there was the, the, the horror that followed. 
um, the General Assembly passed Resolution 181, and you've been discussing it, and we've heard Ian talking about it, creating a separate uh, Jewish and Arab state operating under economic union, and with Jerusalem uh, passed to the UN for trust as you know as a as a trust to, for their trusteeship. And um, well, we know what happened in the in the aftermath um, because um, in 1948, the day in which the British Mandate of Palestine was to expire, Israel declared the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz. Israel, um, to be known as the State of Israel, and the territory of Israel was to be um, uh, the one that was proposed in Resolution 181. Um, and within a few days of the passing of the partition plan, there was a full-scale full uh, conflict broke out um, between the Jewish and um, uh, uh, Arab peoples. And, um, and so, uh, over and over again, I won't go into every single one of the resolutions. What we all know is that very large numbers of resolutions have been passed in relation to this conflict. And, um, and the idea that the Palestinian people might have their own state is, is being reduced to rubble. Um, in fact, not reduced to rubble, in fact, built upon because uh, the very places where they could build um, uh, uh, their state, their place um, of sanctuary is not, is not uh, made possible for them in the current circumstances. Now, I, 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 as I was watching and listening to you, um, and I'm sorry that I was late in coming in, a question came up which said, with all these resolutions that have come through uh, uh, the United Nations and, uh, and calling um, Israel to book for, for its failures to, to um, abide by uh, law, and, and seriously egregious is the idea of occupying land during a, 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 a conflict and then not stepping back and returning it to its people um, afterwards. Um, because what we know that this is one of the absolute tenets of international law, that, that uh, you're not to retain and to use conflict as an opportunity to capture, to land grab. And yet that's what we've seen happening. Um, Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention states that forcible transfers, as well as deportations of protected people from occupied territory to the territory of the occupying power or to that of any other country occupied or not, is prohibited regardless of any motive. Under Article 147 of the uh, 49 Geneva Convention, number four, unlawful deportation or transfer of a protected person constitutes a grave uh, breach of the convention. So the breaches of international law have been repeated and, and you know, I know that others have gone through some of this before I was able to join. And so the question that came up on the side from one of our participants was, is international law dead? Does it have any meaning at all? Well, here we are in Britain and we've got our very own government trashing international law by this introducing um, an internal markets bill, which is in, in total uh, breach of a treaty obligation created less than a year ago um, uh, over, the, over um, the withdrawal agreement um, and the way that that was supposed to protect um, the special protocols in Northern Ireland created by the Good Friday um, Belfast Agreement. And so what we're seeing is a government that's well prepared to trash international law. We know that Donald Trump is certainly prepared to trash international law and he's undermining the United Nations all the time. He's withdrawn from the, the UN uh, Council for Human Rights. We know that, that others are taking comfort from that because we've had Guatemala pulling out of a treaty. We've had uh, um, uh, uh, um, Orban saying that international law shouldn't apply. We've had this happening increasingly around the world. And of course, the way in which the UN was created in 1948 gives huge power uh, to the five key Security Council states. And so the assertion of the rule of law becomes very difficult in our current context. And so when I say that context is everything, it really is. So when we talk about can international law apply, can it just be ignored as Israel uh, is ignoring uh, many of the resolutions that have been made? I'm afraid that the, the international law is only as good as the consensus and the multilateral consensus 
that holds it in place. And once it starts being undermined by uh, major nations in the world, and I'm afraid your questioner on the side is right to say, what, what is it worth? Um, uh, wh where is the, 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 uh, the maintenance of these standards that we thought had been created in the post-World uh, War II consensus, the, the, the rules-based order? It's being diluted by the day. And I'm afraid at this moment, we're dealing with the COVID-19 uh, uh, contagion, this terrible pandemic, but there's another contagion that, is, that is, is, is taking place in this world. And it's the contagion of populism. It's the contagion of attacking any, uh, any set of rules. It's the, it's the celebration of deregulation, the idea that somehow uh, an immature notion that you can live without rules. Uh, and I'm afraid that if you look around, you'll see that most of the places um, where there's a particular uh, trashing of law, they're led by, by men and men who are marooned in their adolescence, who have a problem about maturity and understanding why law matters. And so I, 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 I'm filled with despond. I'm in the, I'm in the slough of despond at this moment um, about the state of our world. But at my heart, I remain an optimist. I remain a believer that people yearn, they yearn for freedom and, and they yearn for self-determination and they yearn for all those things that we tried to put together when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was created and so on. And so uh, I believe that we can keep saying why this stuff matters, why you know, living by the rules matter and why respecting each other and the humanity of each other matters. And the idea that Palestinians are treated as lesser and as less worthy of, of, of a place to call their own is wrong. And I'm, I'm afraid that it, it seems to me sad that that isn't being um, uh, spoken of loudly enough in our world. I have many Israeli friends who actually believe the same as I do. Um, I've gone and I've spent time on the West Bank and seen the, the, the courts that are he held there, um, which are basically military commission courts, so that people are being tried um, um, by uh, um, uh, the occupying state. Kids who throw stones at, um, at, uh, at the army and the army vehicles and stuff. All the, 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 the documents in those uh, commissions are in Hebrew. So the, 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 the people who sign confession statements half the time don't know what even what's in there. And, uh, and do you know that, that so many of the lawyers who are acting in those commission cases, they are Israeli human rights lawyers. So you know, you, there mustn't be this mad idea of seeing this in total black and white. There are many decent, good Israelis who want peace, who want justice, and who want the Palestinian people to be uh, receiving the respect that they deserve and, the, and a place of their own. But they are not at the moment allowed to even speak out. There's a silencing and that's what populism does. So please, when we talk about all of this, we have to talk about it in the, the, in the, in the, in, with mutual respect. And we have to talk about it in recognition of the fact that, that as far as I see it, this might not be the moment when great change will take place, but we have to keep, keep battling for a different kind of discourse, a different kind of world, and a world where multilateralism and the rule of law is respected. Thank you. Thank you so much, Baroness Kennedy. That was very inspiring. It made me think actually of the duty in international law not to recognize breaches of international law. And that may be something we may be able to come on to in the discussion later, if there is time. I'll now turn to Danny Seidemann who is from Jerusalem himself. He is an Israeli attorney specializing in the geopolitics of contemporary Jerusalem. So Danny, over to you. Danny, you're muted by the way. Yeah. Am I unmuted now? <clears throat> Yes. 
We can hear you, Daniel. You can hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, good. Um, given, first of all, thank you for, to the organizers, to Sir Vincent, to Andrew, um, to the Belfer Project. Um, given the title of this discussion, I want to preface with uh, one sentence. Nothing that I am going to describe to you is compatible with international law. So let's get that out of the way. Um, where to begin? Uh, for the purposes of our discussion, I find it useful to begin in the period between 1949 and 1967, when Jerusalem was a Berlin-like divided city and to all intents and purposes, it was two cities and two homogeneous cities. Uh, that's not entirely accurate, but it was an Israeli city and it was a Palestinian city ruled by Jordan. Um, overnight in 1967, and especially with the purported or real annexation of East Jerusalem, Jerusalem was transformed from two homogeneous cities into one binational city in which 25 or 26% of the population was Palestinian. When Israel annexed uh, East Jerusalem, we annexed the land, we did not annex the population. We did not act as we did in 1948. We did not impose Israeli citizenship on the Palestinians in the annexed territories. We did not offer citizenship. They did not want citizenship. Uh, there is an urban legend that the Palestinians are entitled to receive citizenship. That is incorrect. They can ask we can say no, they don't ask and we say no. Uh, there are approximately uh, 15,000 Palestinians of probably 800,000 Palestinians who've lived in the city who became citizens. Everything that Israel has done since 1967 has been driven by the calculus of national struggle. Um, and uh, in, there have been three goals to this, number one, to make the city physically indivisible. It will never be redivided again. Um, to maintain a robust Israeli majority. The euphemism is maintaining the demographic balance. Um, someone is quipped that the birth of a Jewish child in Jerusalem is a simcha, a joy in Yiddish, and the birth of a Palestinian child is a demographic problem and to consolidate um, Israel's status as the capital of Israel. 53 years on, um, Israel has radically changed the face of East Jerusalem. Today, they're on the order of 220,000 Israelis living in the uh, settlement neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, and I certainly do not make light of that. But our policies have failed. They've all failed. Jerusalem today is more binational than ever before. Today, the Palestinian sector of the population is approaching 40%. It is more divided than ever before. And here I disagree with my colleague, Menachem Klein. We walk different streets, speak different languages, go to different schools, study different curricula, shop in different shops. And it's already been mentioned, uh, the United States has not been joined by a chorus in the international community recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, 53 years on, the basic fact that was created in Jerusalem remains the fundamental fact of Jerusalem today. There are two national collectives in Jerusalem, one of which is politically empowered and the other is permanently politically disempowered. The Palestinians of East Jerusalem are not citizens. They do not have the right to vote. They cannot be judges. They cannot um, become mayor of Jerusalem. They can vote for mayor, but don't do so. Um, any political activity more radical than a scout meeting is uh, quashed by Israeli authorities. And situation in which you have two collectives, one with all of the power and the other with none of the power is called occupation. Mm -hmm. um, I had the 
privilege of taking the Trump negotiating team out and around and looking at East Jerusalem. And, and what I told them was, what I've described to you is occupation. I'm not speaking now as an international lawyer. I'm speaking now about the empirical realities. And unless you understand that East Jerusalem is occupied, you won't understand this conflict. And if you don't understand the conflict, you will not be able to formulate policy if you do not establish that one of the goals of a political agreement is ending the occupation of East Jerusalem, you will fail. And that is exactly what happened. A house divided against itself cannot stand half occupied and half free. Now, what does this occupation uh, look like? It informs uh, and seeps into every corner of life. 38, 40% of the population in East Jerusalem gets 10 to 12% of the budget. Um, uh, there, Israel built 55,000 houses in East Jerusalem alone. For Israelis, we built less than 600. For Palestinians, of the last of those was in the mid-1970s. There's a shortfall of more than 2,000 classrooms in East Jerusalem. Now, there have been periods in which occupation has been something of a disease and remission. That's no longer the case. And we're seeing an occupation that is becoming increasingly more aggressive and metastasizing, and that is the nature of occupation. We're seeing an uptick in the displacement of Palestinians from their homes to be turned over to settlers in places like Sheikh Jarrah and Batan al Hawa and Silwan. We're seeing enf enhanced enforcement, another euphemism, in which there are nightly incursions into Isawiya, uh, which is basically been subjected for the last year and a half to collective uh, um, punishment. We're seeing a very dangerous erosion of the status quo on the Temple Mount. This is not because Israel of, of Israeli bad behavior. This doesn't end when Israel behaves better. This is not a situation that can be reformed. What I am describing to you is inherent in the DNA, the genetics of occupation. And until occupation ends, we're going to see more of it and it is not going to be pretty. If you want to be able to see in words what the Israeli policies are in East Jerusalem, I highly recommend that you read the Trump plan, but read it as you would a novel, okay? And what, 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 you, what you discover there, well, first of all, all of Jerusalem, East and West, is assigned to exclusively to Israeli rule, Israeli sovereignty. But beyond that, uh, the Palestinians in general and in East Jerusalem in particular are imbued with a diminished humanity. Israelis have the right of self-determination, Palestinians do not. Jews have rights, Palestinians have needs. Rights are inalienable, needs are uh, malleable and to be distributed as a reward by beneficent benefactors. Um, what we are witnessing in the plan, the, the word Palestinian is mentioned once in the context of Jerusalem, even though it takes up a good deal uh, of the agreement. We are witnessing the denationalization of East Jerusalem and the marginalization of its Muslim equities. So what we are seeing today is the geopolitics uh, as led by Trump and the policies on the ground dovetail and reinforce one another. Um, it's inadequate to describe to you what this looks like up close. And it's not for me, I, I'm Israeli, I'm the occupier, but I feel compelled to do so. And when I speak to the young men and women in Isawiya or Silwan or Surbahe, the word that I think of is extinguished. There's something extinguished because they cannot imagine a trajectory by which occupation ends and they assume a measure of control over their lives. Um, and I don't quite know what to tell them in order to address their 
hopelessness. I do want to end on a slightly different note. Um, at two o'clock in the morning in the 1990s, 2000, uh, I would race over to a house that was being taken over by settlers and there I would meet the late great uh, leader of the Palestinian people, Faisal Husseini, who tragically passed away far too young in May of 2001. And I'd be visibly upset and Faisal would console me and say, Danny, you Israelis are creating facts on the ground. We, the Palestinians, are the facts and we're not going anywhere. I would like to compliment that statement um, by, the by something said by the former head of the Israeli Mossad, Tamir Pardo. Tamir Pardo recently said that Israel is confronting only one existential threat in this generation and that is occupation perpetual occupation. It is not the Iranian nuclear capability. We have an operational response to that. It is not 120,000 um, uh, Hezbollah rockets. Israel over time cannot survive as a perpetually occupying power. And therefore it remains a, an existential imperative to both peoples to end occupation, literally our lives depend on it, even if that is not accessible at the moment. Um, I cannot see in the current situation a route forward, although hopefully on January 21 next, we will begin to rebuild an international order out of the ashes left behind by Trump and his colleagues. Um, but I do believe that ending occupation and a united shared Jerusalem remains an historical inevitability. I might not live to see it, but it remains inevitability. And the challenge of us practitioners on the ground here in Jerusalem is to bridge this terrible chasm between the politically impossible and the historically inevitable um, in making this a city in which uh, well, neither national collective has to struggle to maintain its identity. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Danny. And that was very moving. And I think we might, I might remind everyone of your opening remark that everything you said about what is happening in East Jerusalem everything that is happening, everything you described is incompatible with international law, is forbidden by international law. I will now pass to our, well, we're now opening a discussion period and we're here joined by one other uh, participant, uh, Victor Catan, the Anglo-Palestinian scholar. Um, Victor is now a senior research fellow at the School of Law at Nottingham where he is studying the prohibition of apartheid in international law in places beyond South Africa. For many years, he was a, an associate fellow at the Faculty of Law at Singapore University. His publications include a book, which I recommend very strongly. It's called From Coexistence to Conquest, International Law and the Origins of the Arab-Israeli Conflict 1891 to 1949, which includes the results of some really prodigious research going through the legal archives, national archives at Kew and places, uh, looking at stuff that hardly anyone had looked at before. Um, Victor, um, would you like to open the discussion perhaps? I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is what are there, what um, opportunities are there for the Palestinians to seek redress in international law institutions for what is happening not just in East Jerusalem, but in all the other occupied territories? Um, one of the great problems with international law is very often there is, no, there is no forum in which you can enforce your rights. Would you like to comment on that with reference perhaps to the era of Donald Trump and um, the progress of such litigation as there is going on at the moment? 
Thank you, John, for, for the introduction. Absolutely, I will address these, these issues um, that you've just mentioned. And I just want to start by saying it's wonderful to see so many friends uh, on the panel today. So um, to answer your question, the Palestinian leadership has brought two cases before two, in, two different international courts um, with that, that are relevant with regard to the issue of Jerusalem. Uh, the first case is at the International Court of Justice, which uh, is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, where Palestine lodged an application against the United States of America under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. This followed uh, US President Donald Trump's uh, recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel in December 2017, which has been mentioned by, by a number of people already. Um, and just to explain, the International Court of Justice is a body for resolving interstate disputes, that is disputes between governments, so it doesn't prosecute individuals. And Palestine is asking the court to order the United States of America to withdraw its diplomatic mission from Jerusalem. So some of you might question whether this is a human rights case. Well, if we think of the right to self-determination as the foundation of human rights, and the case is important uh, as the international court is going to have to decide whether Palestine is a state in order to access the court before it addresses the merits. The second case that the Palestinians have brought before an international body is at the International Criminal Court, which is also located in The Hague, um, but which unlike the International Court of Justice can prosecute individuals for crimes under its statutes, namely genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. Palestine claims that crimes have been committed on the territory of Palestine by Israel since the 13th of June 2014, and this includes East Jerusalem. Accordingly, with regard to the issue of Jerusalem, which this conference is about, there may be a tension between both cases. This is because the case before the international court, Palestine claims that Jerusalem has a special status in international law, as provided in United Nations General Assembly Resolution 181, that sought to partition the former British mandate into two states. And we heard about this from Professor Avi Schlein this morning and also from Baroness Helena Kennedy and uh, Ian Scobby in their, in their talks um, already. Uh, that resolution envisaged a special international regime over the city of Jerusalem, which would be administered by the United Nations for a renewable 10 year period. That would be overseen by the United Nations Trusteeship Council. And the boundaries of the special international regime extended as far as Ein Karim in the west of Jerusalem and included Bethlehem to the south of the city. By way of contrast, Palestine's application to the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court refers to East Jerusalem as part of the territory of the occupied state of Palestine. East Jerusalem is the name given to that part of the city that was captured by Israel in the June 1967 war, which Danny Siederman has, has said much about. So it's not clear whether Palestine can claim sovereignty over Jerusalem while also claiming that the city has a special status in international law, as defined in, in General Assembly Resolution 181. Perhaps this is where the proposals mentioned by Professor Mick Dumper in his talk this morning might be relevant, as some of these envisage a special international regime for the old city, while other areas of the city fall under Israeli or Palestinian sovereignty. Now, why does any of this matter, you, you may ask? Well, at present, the issue of Palestinian statehood and Israeli war crimes are under active consideration by both of these uh, courts, or by the International Court of Justice and by a pre-trial chamber at the International Criminal Court. At the end of uh, last year, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court announced that following an assessment of all the available and reliable information that was available to her, she concluded that, uh, that uh, all the statutory criteria under her statute had been met and, and that she could open an investigation. However, given the complex legal and factual issues uh, attaching to the situation in Palestine, she requested a jurisdictional ruling from this pretrial chamber on the issue of, of the territorial jurisdiction of the court. In other words, the chamber is going to have to determine whether East Jerusalem is part of the Palestinian states, among other things. So my expectation is that we will not hear anything from either the pretrial chamber or the international court until after the results of the US presidential election. In my mind, the Biden administration would be less hostile to the cases Palestine has brought before these courts. This does not mean that Biden would move the embassy back to Tel Aviv. However, an ICJ decision that said that Palestine was a state might put momentum back into failed peace talks, or it might lead some, and it might lead some European states to recognize the state of Palestine. I also think that Biden would be less hostile to the International Criminal Court than Trump. 
I do not think he would enforce sanctions against or call for sanctions against ICC officials as the Trump administration has done. And even if he were to do so, yeah, uh, Biden would face, uh, I would imagine, a lot of criticism from the left flank of the Democratic Party. So clearly there is a lot at stake in the US presidential election on the 3rd of November. So I'll leave it there and I'll be happy to hear from other members of the panel what they think about these issues. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Victor. Um, unfortunately, we're very nearly out of time. And I'd hoped to have a discussion now, and I'd hoped to touch on the importance of non-recognition of breaches of international law. Um, and I think it's relevant, and I think that is very relevant to the discussion earlier on today about whether there is a one-state or a two-state solution. Because if Palestine does exist as a state on the occupied Palestinian territory, then there is very there is a duty in international law not to recognize breaches of international law, including the so-called Israeli facts on the ground that um, I think George W. Bush began by um, appeasing, if one can use that word, or placating, shall we say. Um, and that very much extends to whatever President Trump has done. But would anyone like to comment on that issue or on anything else? Or um, I'll begin maybe in the order in which people have uh, spoken. So I'll go back to you, Ian, if I may. Would you like to make a few concluding remarks? Any, any points that you think are of particular interest that have come out of uh, the presentations today? You already talked about non-recognition, John. This has been a consistent plea uh, by Security Council General Assembly and also in the, the ICJ 2004 opinion, for the, the, the court laid down a very clear duty of non-recognition for the unlawful Israeli act. Helena raised something earlier about you know, all these resolutions by various UN bodies. The thing about them, Helena, is that they were mainly recommendations. Um, anything that comes out of the General Assembly is a recommendation there are very few instances, particularly until oh, the end of the Cold War, where the Security Council would use its powers of decision. So it was making recommendations rather than making decisions which would be binding on UN members. So that's me. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, Helena, would you like to say a few closing words? You're muted, Helena. You're muted. I well, and I've no, I've no lost. You've lost me. Um, I, I really, I really, I really was very moved by hearing Danny, um, uh, and I want to pay tribute to him. For his incredible work, and and for everybody who's spoken, um, uh, something came up on the side. Um, I've been looking at the questions and the comments from people, and someone said, "You know, can't we now really sort of if keep talking, stop talking about the history, and let's um, talk about now and how we find a peaceful solution?" And there is a bit of me that has that feels that same sense of urgency. That the more we pick at the scabs of, of the past, um, it can be problematic. Um, but 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 in some ways, you know, people can't get rid of those feelings. Say that to Black Americans who who have had the history of slavery impacting on their lives and still affecting um, how things are in the United States. Say that to people who experience racism in this country. Their, their own countries back home having been exploited by us and having enriched the United Kingdom. So you, you can't get away from the history, but that doesn't mean that you can't also be talking about finding a way through um, and finding a peaceful solution now. And, you know, um, when you look at the truth and reconciliation process in, in, in South Africa, it hasn't solved everything, but it did deal with a lot of the pain. And I, and I, and I just hope that a moment will come where we can actually move to something different. Um, but we're not going to be able to do it easily. Um, the United States, um, uh, um, you know, even, even after Trump, 
will still um, have this uh, um, a kind of burden of, uh, of feeling that it, uh, it, uh, it set itself on a certain course. And I do think that we have to be pressing everyone to recognize um, the, the Palestinian state and from there onwards to start making the, the, the arguments as to how that state can become uh, a reality. So um, retain our optimism, believe that peace and, uh, and self-determination is possible, but we have to do it by asserting that human rights matter um, and, uh, and that the rule of law matters. And then, you know, we might get somewhere. So, um, but I pay tribute to everybody this morning and um, we have to keep believing that this can be done. We can do it. Thank you very much, Helena. Um, Danny, over to you. Some concluding thoughts? Yes. Um, as usual, I'm rather close to events, so I will give a response that's close to events. Uh, one of the people in the audience asked me, what, what do I think about the Abraham Accords? Well, um, on October 15th, the first group of Muslim pilgrims um, came to Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount al-Aqsa, under the Abraham Accords, under the normalization process from the Gulf. Now, Pope Francis visited the Temple Mount Jerusalem, the holy sites in 2014. And when he got to Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount, um, he was escorted by the Waqf guards. Uh, um, he went through the gates that were controlled by the Waqf guards. Israel wanted Israeli security to accompany him through the Israeli, quote unquote, Mogrebi gate. He was greeted there by Prince Ghazi of the Royal Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. In 2018, Prince William underwent something very similar. Israel said, you know, our security, we need to have our security and go through the Mogrebi gate. No, 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 no. no hosted by the Waqf and greeted by a senior uh, dip Jordanian diplomat uh, on Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount. And note that I'm using the terminology of both. Um, the visitors from the Gulf were accompanied by Israeli police, demonstrating, showing that the Pope and Prince William have a deeper commitment to international law than they do. Now, I'm an Israeli, I'm a Jew, and I'm a Zionist. Normalization is important to me. My Zionism is the Jewish people assuming our rightful place among the family of nations. But normalization has to take place in a way that's compatible with international law. Uh, Israel was born out of international law, and this conflict needs to be addressed through international law. So even when there are events that on the face of things seem to be so unequivocal, who can oppose you know, uh, people's rights to pray? It is being done in a way that is marginalizing the Palestinians and sending a clear message, which has been the consistent message of Trump and Netanyahu, Palestinian lives matter less, and sometimes they don't matter at all. And we have to harness normalization and international law to send the counter message, Israeli and Palestinian lives matter. Thank you very much, Danny, for those moving words. Victor, very briefly, have you got a final thought? Um, well, just to say that I agree with Danny, the issue of Al-Haram al-Sharif Temple Mounts and especially Jordan's role um, as the custodian of the holy site is, I think, one of the most important and underreported issues uh, of the contemporary dispute was the, between Israel and the Palestinians and that uh, the Abraham Accords uh, is, is somewhat uh, undermining it. Um, so I'll just leave it uh, at that and thank everyone. Thank you, Victor, and thank you to all our speakers. One final concluding thought, international law does matter. If you doubt it, think of how Stalin took over Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, but we continued to recognise them as sovereign states through the, throughout the many dark decades of Soviet occupation. And when the Soviet Union ended, they 
their, their sovereignty was restored to them. It wasn't a new sovereignty that came to them from leaving the Soviet Union. It was their old sovereignty that they had always rightfully enjoyed. And the same applies to all international law rights of all states and of all peoples, including, of course, the Palestinians and the Israelis. Thank you all very much. We will begin again, I think, at 1.30. So there's time for a quick lunch break. And in the at 1.30, um, there will be a panel looking at the role of religion and the holy places. Thank you all very much. I'll now hand back to, to Dee.